So, uh, thank you all again for coming, Chanukah, in and in a good Chodesh. Um, so, when we left off last week, we were just at the end of the second principle. Uh, and I said that we were going to finish off one last thought as it relates to the second principle uh, before we move on to the, to the third. So, we will uh, go ahead and we will uh, try and do that uh, now. So, one of the things which is coming up uh, in the... Uh, uh, in next week, partially really, not the this week of, of Miketz, but next week in Parshas of Vayigash, um, when Yaakov and uh, Yosef are once again reunited. So the Torah tells us that uh, after 20 years of being separated, and we know from this past week's Parsha about how pained um, uh, Yaakov was when he heard that, uh, when he thought that Yosef wasn't there, even though ultimately he couldn't really uh, reconcile it in his brain, and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't uh, be uh, be comforted. So when they were reunited, so it says that uh, Yosef, so he cried on Yaakov's shoulder, on his neck. He went ahead and gave a, a, a cry, but the Torah doesn't say anything about how Yaakov reacted. The Torah is sort of silent as far as that is concerned. In Chazal tell us, uh, Rashi brings it down, I think, that uh, what Yaakov was doing when he was finally reunited, reunited with Yosef at Tzadik was he was saying Kriyashma. And that's why he didn't cry. And uh, it's a strange thing for, uh, for Yaakov uh, when you look at it, uh, you know, just as a, from a human perspective, it's a strange thing that Yaakov would be doing that uh, after being re- reunited with the son, his, uh, his dear beloved son, after 22 years, he would go ahead and decide that that's an appropriate time to say, uh, to say Kriyashma. Seemingly, we would think that, uh, that Yaakov could have planned his day. It's not as if um, uh, uh, Yosef uh, just popped in on him, like one of those videos where you surprise somebody coming from the army or something, and you surprise them and you catch them off guard. Uh, Yaakov traveled from Canaan or from Eretz Yisrael to Mitzrayim to see Yosef, so he knew exactly that uh, that this uh, that he was there. Uh, he was going to see him, and he could have planned his day better. He could have planned his day or his night better to make sure to get Minyan in before he sees Yosef, or to go ahead and get uh, to do something where he wouldn't have to be saying uh, Kriyashma. So why uh, why was it that uh, that Yaakov was saying Kriyashma at this moment? So the Mabim says that uh, Yaakov specifically, he went out of his way to say Kriyashma at that moment. What's the reason he went out of his way to say Kriyashma at, the, at that moment? Because uh, at the moment when he could have been focused on his own emotional state, in, in the personal joy that he would be, uh, be feeling, decided that what he was going to do in almost superhuman uh, terms, but decided that what he was going to do is he was going to take all of that emotion in all of that love that he was feeling towards Yosef Atzadik at that moment, finally reunited after 22 years, thinking that he was dead, and he would go ahead and he's going to direct that in terms of his love of Hashem. So as I said, that's something which is certainly superhuman. It's not an expectation, uh, even within the ballpark of that, of anything that any of us would be, would be able to do. But it's something which sort of sets the bar for us in terms of our relationship with Hashem, in terms of the uh, the uh, the unity of, uh, of of God, and the relationship that we're supposed to strive in order to be able to uh, to achieve, and it's something which every time we say Kriyashma, uh, some of us uh, I can already uh, testify that they said Kriyashma tonight, at least one, 
uh, they said the Kriyashma already uh, tonight was in, in Shul, but it's something that we have to be mindful of, and it's something that we're, we're a, a, always working towards, is to be able to connect ourselves on the deepest of levels with, uh, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Yaakov Avinu really sets the bar when he took this moment of great emotion, great joy and emotion, he was able to channel that towards, uh, towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we know from the story of Rabbi Kiva that when Rabbi Kiva was executed, and at that time he was also saying, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alkeinu Hashem Echad, he was also unifying the name of Hashem at, at that time. And the students there also, just like you would imagine that everybody who's present at the scene when Yaakov and Yosef are finally reunited, everybody looks at Yaakov, you know, and he's going, Hashem Echad, which would be a strange thing to be doing if you're an observer in the room, let alone uh, Yaakov, you know. But both of them had the same thought in mind. There's the students turn to Rabbi Kiva and say, even now you're going to be saying Kriyishma as you're taking your life. And as we know, Rabbi Kiva's response was, my whole life, I've been waiting for this moment to be able to connect to Hashem at Echad on the deepest of levels. And now that the opportunity has finally arisen or has finally uh, 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 arrived, arisen, that I could go ahead and do so. So you want me to go ahead and not say Kriyashma at this time? This is what, uh, this is what I've been working for my entire life. So that's what we work towards also, not that we're going to have to give up our lives for, for Hashem, and not that uh, at a moment of the greatest of joy, we will be capable of directing our love in the emotion towards Hashem, rather than the people in the events which are going on. But ultimately, that's the goal which we are working for. And every time we say that Hashem Echad, so we have to be working to get ourselves just that little bit closer to be able to connect ourselves with the, uh, the, the unified God. Okay, so that ends Ad Khan principle base. Of the unity of God. The next principle is, and I apologize that I didn't go ahead and make a, a copy to be, for us to be able to, re, to read together. But the next principle, which is the third principle, so this is the, uh, the principle that God has no body. In lo demus aguf no guf, that there's a, as we say in Yigdal, because Baruch doesn't have a body and he doesn't have the outline of a body or the figure of the body and nothing in uh, uh, corporeal can we go ahead and assign in terms of our understanding of Hashem. And the Rambam, in this one, he actually goes out of his way, and he mentions the fact that, uh, that there are many psukim in Tanakh, which indicate that Kosh Baruch Hu does have a body. We talk about Hashem's outstretched hand. We talk about his thinking process. There's a pasuk in Yeshai, which talks about Hashem getting tired that his shoulders getting tired, that all of these things would seem to, to indicate to us that God does have a body. And being that, there are so many uh, psukim which would indicate that to us. So that's why the Rambam feels the necessity to go out of his way to make sure that nobody should erroneously think that in fact God does have a body. But he, uh, he, he uh, 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 therefore the principle is to make sure that we know that God does not have a body. That's a fundamental principle of our belief that God does not have a, have a body. In his work on halacha, in the Yad Chazaka, so the Rambam actually talks at great length, uh, even more so than he does in the, uh, as he formulates his principles, but it almost seems that he spent an inordinate amount of time emphasizing this point uh, in reviewing what would seem to be a relatively straightforward and simple concept, that God doesn't, uh, that God doesn't have a body. So why does, 
Why is it necessary? So the, the, the Rambam says the reason why uh, in Tanakh we use such language, and certainly Chazal use that language, uh, that type of language even more so, is uh, they are mere uh, anthropomorphic uh, references. Don't ask me to go ahead and spell either of those two words, but they're anthropomorphic references which HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, uh, gives, and we have to understand all of those references and all of those terms from that, uh, that perspective, that God doesn't actually have an arm which gets outstretched. God doesn't, actually, doesn't have a head upon which his tefillin rests. He doesn't have an arm on which uh, tefillin are bound to, uh, to his arm. We do so to go ahead and describe him in ways with, uh, which we can understand. Now, the author of the Chova Salavavos, one of the great uh, philosophical and, uh, and early uh, Musa works, which we have, so the Chova Salavavos actually wonders why God chose to use anthropomorphic references to himself, if in fact that uh, it's something which is, is potentially so misleading, because if somebody's going to take Tanakh literally, so they would certainly arrive at the conclusion that God has a body because there's enough references throughout Tanakh of different body parts of Hashem that, uh, that it's easy for a person to go ahead and arrive at, that, uh, arrive at that conclusion. So why would Hashem go ahead and use terminology and use references and, uh, and uh, illustrations, as it were, that are going to mislead us into thinking that God has a body when it's such an important and fu- fundamental principle for us to realize that God does not have a body? So the Chava Salavavos shares with us an amazing answer, what I think is an amazing uh, answer, an amazing uh, perspective. And he says that it it was a calculated risk which God took by deciding to go ahead and use anthropomorphic references. We're using anthropomorphisms to describe why he uses anthropomorphisms. But again, for lack of of better language uh, uh, to be able to describe God, so we have no choice but but to do so. But he says that although uh, it could potentially lead people to that erroneous conclusion that God does have a body, there are two choices. Either people think erroneously that God has a body or have no anthropomorphic references whatsoever. And then we have no frame of reference to be able to connect with Hashem. Because if you go ahead and you just think of Hashem, um, I don't know how many of you have, have seen it, uh, or have read that piece, but Rabbi Arya Kaplan, so a uh, uh, wonderful uh, writer and wonderful uh, thinker and presenter of ideas. So he he doesn't like the, uh, the the use of the term being in reference to God. He thinks that being has a particular connotation to it of something which is going to be physical uh, of sorts, and he doesn't like that uh, the, like that reference. He really prefers referring to God as a principle. A principle like the Pythagorean theorem or something like that, um, but he likes to refer to God as a principle because principles are something which have no body to them whatsoever. So you're not going to mistake it as having a body. But these principles are true no matter where you go in the universe, in the universe, and no matter what time in the in the timeline of the universe, it doesn't make a difference where you are in that timeline. Those principles are always going to remain the uh, the same. So he likes to refer to God as a principle rather than a, a, as a being. But if you go ahead and you think about it, uh, when was the last time you felt a personal connection with the Pythagorean theorem? 
probably never, even when you were taking geometry and whatever, if it appears in geometry or in algebra, wherever, wherever it is, it's been a while for me, um, maybe longer for some of you, but it's been a while, uh, <laughs> it's been a while for, uh, for me since, uh, since doing so, but theorems and principles, whether mathematical or whether, uh, you know, something from, uh, from physics or, or, or chemistry or something like that. So those are truths which exist in the universe, but we don't really connect with them. They're just facts which are, but it's not something that you're going to have a relationship with. So God, the whole purpose of creation is that we should be able to connect with him. As we've talked about that, the ultimate good which exists in the universe, which we are promised for choosing well, is to be able to connect to God. And there's no way we're going to be able to connect with God if all we think of him is something which is, there's the Pythagorean theorem, there's pi, and then there's God you know, in whatever order you'd like to go ahead and, and put them there, but it's not something we're going to connect with. So therefore, using anthropomorphic references is the lesser of two evils. The two potential things being not being able to associate at all or associating with God and mistakenly thinking that he has a, that he actually has a body. So given the, uh, these, uh, the, these uh, two potential uh, evils, so the lesser of them is to think that God has a, a body. And therefore, um, uh, that was the safer of the uh, 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 of the two. Um, Excuse me. Doesn't yeah. uh, doesn't say that? Wait, you, wait, sorry, it, it's go, it's going on and off your the microphone. Okay. Doesn't the Rambam actually later say that he recognizes that most people can't conceive of something that doesn't have a body? Um, yeah. So for the Rambam, uh, again. We, uh, don't want to spend too much time on that, but the Rambam, uh, you know, definitely is. Uh, I'm not sure how comfortable everybody is with the term, but the Rambam was somewhat of an uh, an elitist. You know that God is going to be perceived by the uh, by the intellect, and it's the development of the intellect which is where the greatness of mankind is going to is going to be achieved. And uh, he saw people as. Um, useful pawns in the running of the world, but not necessarily that they're going to be able to achieve the highest of, of levels. Uh, I think that's maybe putting it nicely as far as the perception of, uh, of mankind, of mankind overall. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, yes. Um, it may be, it's, uh, it's, it, it may be, and it's likely that many people would misunderstand uh, they wouldn't actually uh, grasp the uh, the full concept of God as a result of that, but uh, better uh, to have a corporeal perception of God, even though it's incorrect that you could associate with, than to be incapable of having a relationship with God altogether. So the Chovah Salavavah says that that was uh, that that was the the lesser of two evils, and that's why we go ahead and do so. Um, the Rambam obviously. Uh, would not necessarily agree. He, he likely would not agree with the Chovas Alavavos' assessment of that. Because remember, we said at the outset that uh, according to the Rambam, if somebody does not believe with a full faith uh, in all 13 principles, so they lose their portion of the world to come. So according to the Rambam, it's not as if you could say that this is the lesser of two evils and God would rather have us believe that he is corporeal than to not be able to associate with him altogether because a corporeal God is also something which is 
violates our principles of faith and it will cause a person to forego their chilek, their portion of the world to come. So it's really not that this puts you, positions you any better than the person who doesn't have a relationship with God. Both of them ultimately are, are going to be in the category of uh, those people who do not have a portion of the world uh, to come. So it would seem uh, strange that uh, that uh, that uh, he would not uh, he would not uh, accept this premise of the chovas halavavos that believing in a corporeal god is the lesser of the uh, of the two evils. Um, now, but but that's but that's the position of the chovas halavavos. We mentioned also in the introduction the rived, uh, the one who writes uh, 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 who disagrees to the Rambam on the page of the uh, the printed Rambam himself. So he also uh, very strongly disagrees with the Rambam on, on his point. And he says that, uh, he writes that, uh, although it's incorrect to believe that God is corporeal, nonetheless, he does not think that one who believes that should be categorized as a heretic. He writes, the Ravid writes, on the page of the Rambam it's himself, the translation would be, would be, greater and better men than he, referring to the Rambam, uh, have accepted this view based on the Psukim and Agadaic literature that make references to God's physical existence. And therefore, being that not only in Tanakh do we find such things, but certainly in Chazal we find such things. So they find that the Ravid finds it to be almost absurd to say that somebody who has such a belief is going to be categorized as a heretic. So again, the Ravid doesn't, doesn't advocate, doesn't believe that God is corporeal, but he just doesn't think that it's going to be as severe uh, a belief as the Rambam makes it, makes it out to be. Okay. Well, but everybody, as we said, everybody agrees that God is not uh, corporeal. And, um, uh, and what we need to explore, being that this is a, uh, a, a series on the Rambam's 13 principles. So the Rambam gets the, uh, gets the conch, he gets to hold the conch, and he gets to direct the, uh, the conversation over here. So the question is, why uh, does the Rambam hold that a person who believes in a corporeal God, who believes that God has some sort of body, if whenever they think of God, uh, George Burns comes to mind or something like that. So why is that something which is going to be so offensive to, uh, to a person's uh, uh, belief in God to such a degree that the person is going to forego their portion of the world to come? Seems like a pretty harsh, um, I don't want to say decree, but a pretty harsh consequence for something which is an understandable mistake, somebody who's reading Tanakh somewhat, uh, somewhat literally. So why is the punishment uh, so harsh? So the explanation of this uh, has to be put in the context of the Rambam's uh, perception in how he understands the overall concept of Olam Haba. In other words, the, the Rambam says, Rambam holds that uh, entrance into the world to come is the culmination of a process, this goes back to his elitism, but it's the culmination of a process of intellectual perfection. Person over the course of their lifetime, they should be developing their intellect uh, and using that in terms of perception of God and performance of mitzvahs, but everything from the Rambam's perspective really relates to the, the, uh, the perfection of the intellect. And a person who has dedicated themselves over the course of their lifetime, their days and their months and their years in, the, in pursuing God 
and achieving a profound intellectual awareness of, of God. So that person is going to be, after 120, that person is going to be able to, in a sense, graduate to the next level. They go from their bachelor's to their master's, they go from their master's to their PhD, or they go from their PhD to wherever you go from, uh, from there. And that is just the natural next step for a person after all of their effort in, uh, in, uh, in striving for intellectual perfection in this, this world, they graduate to, uh, to the next level. A person who, yes, Mel, are you volunteering for the person of intellectual perfection? The Rambam seems to, in my opinion, confuse yeah. intellectual perfection with emotional response. With he what? That he, he seems to think that when you achieve a high intellect, it fuses with your emotional response. And the others seem to say, no, that's not true. You can still have an emotional feeling toward Hashem, think of him with a body. Intellectually, you know that's not true. But the Rambam um, confuses those two. So the, it, it's not clear that the Rambam um, um, placed much emphasis on emotion. Um, you know, when we when we talk about the the, the kalto litvak, right? The uh, the cold-hearted, you know, uh, 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 ice water running through the veins of the litvak who's just concerned about doing, uh, you know, the mitzvah correctly, you know, the details of the mitzvah without uh, the Hasidic uh, warmth of doing a mitzvah. So it's not by by coincidence, I don't think, that uh, that litvaks, uh, in terms of their learning, they're very rooted in the Rambam. For M. Salvechik and stuff like that. So that's something which they very much uh, connect to uh, because that, uh, you know, uh, falls in line with their, their general perception of things. I remember Rabbi Raka told me once that um, somebody took the Rambam's handwriting, they took one of his manuscripts, and they gave it to a handwriting analyst to go ahead and to sort of. Uh, um, uh, see what they could see, see or had miserable handwriting. No, they, so he, so the, uh, to see what the, they could discern from the Rambam's handwriting. And if I remember correctly, what Rabbi Raka reported from whoever did it is that they said that the writer, they had no idea that it was the Rambam that they were looking at. They were just looking at, a, at writing, but they said that it is a highly emotional person whose intellect is in complete control of everything that they do. So that's the way, uh, you know, this, if I remember correctly, that's the way it was, uh, that's the way the person touched up the Rambam. That's the way he perceived the Rambam. That somebody who used their, their intellect very strongly to control their emotions, not to let the emotions get the best of them, but to use the intellect to control their, uh, their emotions. Um, but the Rambam definitely is, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, from that, that, that school of thought, that emotions are really going to be uh, what, uh, what is, uh, what is most, uh, imp uh, sorry, intellect is what's going to be most, uh, most important. And the, uh, the emotional, like we say, the Hasidic uh, Varmkeit uh, that, uh, you know, that many people gravitate to nowadays is something which uh, probably would not have uh, impressed the, uh, the Rambam very much. I, I, I can't imagine the Rambam would have been interested in attending a Karbach uh, Kabbalah Shabbos. Just a guess on my part, but uh, but I, I don't think that's something which uh, you know would, would would have drawn would have necessarily drawn him in. Um, so be that as it may, 
you know, hopefully we'll find out, uh, you know, we can find out uh, soon when, uh, you know, when Shiach comes and we'll be able to, uh, to see whether or not he actually attends a Karabach uh, minion or not. Um, but uh, he, uh, but the Rambam says that uh, entrance into Olam Haba is the next step following a lifetime of pursuit of intellectual greatness. And those people who did not achieve that greatness, who fell short of the mark, so uh, uh, by default almost, or by lack of, of, uh, of qualification, they, they don't earn the right to take the next step. Let's put it in terms of, since we mentioned math before, so let's put it in terms of math. Uh, a person who finishes algebra, so they could potentially move on to calculus or something like that, or trigonometry. So if you go from algebra to trigonometry, that would be a natural progression for somebody who, uh, who finished algebra. Somebody who fails algebra, who then wants to get into a trig class or a calculus class. So hopefully their advisor will tell them, listen, you failed algebra. If you failed algebra, there's no way you're going to be able to manage trigonometry. It's just not for you. It's something which is beyond what your abilities are because you couldn't even, uh, couldn't even master uh, uh, algebra. So the denial of entrance into the trigonometry or into the calculus class is not a punishment because the person did something wrong, it's because they're not qualified. They don't have the skills or they don't have the, uh, the background to be, able to, uh, to be able to manage trigonometry or calculus if, uh, cal- if algebra was something which was overwhelming uh, to them. So in the same way, Olam Haba is there, is the natural progression from those who have already graduated from at a certain level, a uh, certain grade uh, uh, level that they achieved during their lifetime. So the natural progression, the next step from there is going to be entrance into the world to come. Because the world to come is an opportunity to connect with God on that same intellectual level. It's just the next step that you would use your intellect. Don't ask me how intellect is going to apply in the world to come. I can't uh, explain that. Maybe when we get to uh, the later principles, which have to do with the world to come, we'll have a, a, a better picture of that. But whatever that's going to be, if Olam Haba is perceived as the next level in one's intellectual pursuit of understanding of God, so then those people who fall short, they fail by virtue of the fact that some of those fundamental beliefs are not in place. So it's only natural that they can't take that next step. So being that it's natural, not getting Olam Haba is not a punishment per se. Not going into Olam Haba just means that one doesn't have the prerequisites. So absent those prerequisites, you could be as smart as you want. One second, Mel. You could be as smart as you want, but in the event that you don't have the prerequisites to get in there, um, you're not going to get in, right? You could do, you could score very well on your MCATs. I think that's what you take to go to medical school, right? So you could have, you could get straight A's in, in your bachelor's. You could score very well on your MCATs, but if you went ahead and you pursued a degree, you got your degree in, uh, you know, Far East uh, literature, you know, ancient literature, and you didn't take any biology, chemistry, physics, or any of those prerequisites for medical school, you're not gonna get into medical school. You're very smart, you're very capable, you're very talented, you know a lot of stuff, but if you don't have those prerequisites, they just can't let you in because you don't know the stuff which, uh, which you need to know as the starting point, as a springboard to be able to move on from, uh, from there. What happens so in the, the same way, 
the Rambam's perception of Olam Haba is such that you have to have fulfilled all of the prerequisites in order to be able to get in there. And he sees the 13 principles as those prerequisites. And as a result of that, if a person is missing one of those prerequisites, so it's very simple to go ahead and reject the application because you don't have the necessary prerequisites in order to be able to, uh, to get there. Does the Rambam yes, say ma'am. what happens to the rest yep, of us? You have to speak a little in? bit louder. Does the Rambam say what happens to the rest of us who don't get in? Um, so uh, we don't get in. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's not clear, again, because the Rambam uh, probably does not hold you know, too much of reincarnations and coming back and giving a second try and, you know, starting again, uh, you know, if after, your, after grade 12, uh, you don't make it into college. Uh, I don't know if he says that you necessarily have to start off in pre-1A again and start from the beginning, uh, you know, like in Monopoly, go back to go, do not collect $200, <laughs> you know, something like that and just, uh, you know, start the, the board at the beginning again. So I, I, I don't know what exactly he says. It could just be that, that they don't get it. Now, again, it, it's not, believing in the 13 principles isn't something which is an enormous task. You don't have to be a member of Mensa or anything like that in order to be a, to be a believer in the 13 principles. Uh, probably being a qualifying member, a Mensa member, uh, is probably more of a hindrance towards, uh, you know, the person believing the 13 principles than, than not. But it's not something which uh, ultimately requires the, uh, a, the great intellect of somebody like the Rambam. You just have to believe in these 13 principles. So sometimes us simple people, it's easier for us to believe in things than those people who, uh, who uh, have a, 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 a more intellectual bend. Uh, our, our, our simple belief, like they tell over in Hasidic stories all the time, the simple belief of the simple person is something which many of us lack because we have way too much uh, um, emphasis on intellect in, in our lives. And we, we overthink things rather than just taking things, uh, you know, uh, on a simplistic level. Um, okay, so that's, that's where the Rambam is coming from in terms of his, uh, his uh, conclusion that somebody who was to believe that God is corporeal, that God has some sort of body. So that just means that they're missing one of the necessary prerequisites in order to believe in God. And therefore they just, uh, they, they simply don't, uh, they, they don't qualify. Okay, now, um, okay. Um, now, there's a, another uh, point, which is, uh, which is important to emphasize over here. And that is that um, the fact that God is not corporeal in any way, that he has no, uh, no body uh, in any way. So this tells us that it's going to be impossible to empirically prove God's existence empirically proved using some sort of scientific method is something which is going to be impossible. And therefore, at the very outset, if somebody tells you, I have proof of God's existence, and certainly if they tell you that they have empirical proof of God's existence, it's not even worth spending your time list entertaining that possibility because it's something which from the very outset is an impossible endeavor. Because the only way that you can empirically, the only things which can be empirically proven are those things which are some way quantified in our physical universe. Those things which cannot be quantified in our physical universe. So there's no way to be able to, you cannot uh, demonstrate any sort of empirical proof uh, 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 of that. So God can't be weighed, he can't be measured. 
He can't be detected. There's no machine which you're going to do. There's no God detector, which a scientist, uh, you know, the marvelous Dr. Midos is going to be able to invent in order to be able to, uh, to, uh, to detect God's existence. It's something which is, from the very outset, is, uh, is impossible. But uh, that doesn't mean that, um, uh, that uh, but it's important to be mindful of the fact that not, not all of our beliefs are rooted in empirical proof. So we like to think of ourselves as a, a, a people of science. You know, uh, I imagine everybody has seen those signs that uh, together with believing in tolerance and uh, Skokie welcoming everybody and all of those things. So one of the things which appears on signs is that we believe in science as opposed to those who I, I guess don't believe in science or stuff like that. I don't know what part of science that, the, that they don't believe in, but it's a nice thing for people to say that they are believers of science. And therefore that leads people to, uh, to uh, assert that they only believe in those things which are empirically true. Now keep in mind that anything which is historical at this point is not empir- it cannot be empirically proven. In other words, if I were to ask any of you uh, to go ahead and empirically prove George Washington was the first president of the United States, how would you go about uh, doing that? Excellent. It's impossible because something which existed only in the past and no longer exists now, so that's not going to be something that you could weigh, measure, that you could uh, that you could determine in any way, shape, or form. So those things which are uh, which are historical, um, those are things which cannot be empirically proven. That's one of the difficulties that we have as a people in terms of the stories which we read through. Uh, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov and Sarifka Rachel and Leah and Yosef Atzadik and the uh, descent into Mitzrayim, the miracles which occurred as we left Mitzrayim, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the travels of the desert for 40 years, all of those things which we take for granted uh, as religious Jews as fact. So we all know that somebody who does not begin from the same start, the perspective as we do, so one would go ahead and one can easily deny, and there are people who deny the, his, the historical accuracy of any of those things. Because some of them just, uh, you know, the Noach's uh, Teva, all of these things, which are, are, are miracles, which the Torah uh, uh, recounts to us. So somebody who does not begin with our frame of reference is going to say, these things are impossible. They cannot exist. Uh, there's no way that you know, 600,000 people are going to walk through a, a river which split in half uh, and just walk through on dry land from one side to the other. It takes an enormous amount of effort and planning to be able to move 600,000 people anywhere, even in the best of, uh, of circumstances, and to just pick up and go uh, one day and walk out of Mitzrayim. It's something which cannot happen. Uh, cannot happen. So people are, are always questioning whether something in history did occur or did not occur. But the fact that something is historical doesn't stop us from believing that it's true. The, the difference between them is the, the phrase that Rav Yaakov Weinberg used to use in reference to these types of things is that when it comes to matters of belief, and certainly when it comes to matters of history, our job is to be a judge, not a lawyer. That was his phrase, to be a judge and not a lawyer. What's the difference between a a judge and a lawyer? 
So as we know, the reason, one of the reasons why lawyers uh, would have a bad reputation is because, uh, and certainly uh, those famous lawyers for like criminal defense and whatnot, so the reason why they are famous and the reason why they get paid is to be able to prove whatever their client wants them to prove. So if you're O.J. Simpson, you want your lawyers to be able to prove that you didn't, uh, you didn't kill her. If you're, you know, whoever, uh, you know, whatever uh, criminal it is. So the job of their lawyer is very simple and straightforward. Make sure to get a not guilty verdict. Whatever you have to say, however you have to twist around all of the evidence and reinterpret it and question it and challenge it and place, you know, uh, plant seeds of doubt in the juror's mind, whatever you have to do in order to make sure that the client is innocent. So that's the job of the lawyer. Everything is going to be reinterpreted from, uh, for, with one conclusion in mind. The conclusion is known ahead of time and everything then has to match that, that, that conclusion. A judge's job, in contrast to that of a lawyer, judge's job is to uh, 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 review all of the presented evidence and to go ahead and weigh out all of the evidence and decide which seems most likely and most plausible and seems to uh, explain in the most logical way, in the most reasonable way, what the conclusion that all of the evidence is going to point to. So an impartial judge doesn't come with a preconceived notion about what he wants it to be, he should be an impartial judge by definition is somebody who says, I'm open to hear and to listen to and to process all the evidence which you present to me. And once I have all the evidence, so then I'll decide which is most reasonable and which is not. So if we take the example that we gave of, of George Washington, and this Rav Yaakov Weinberg also says, is the difference between faith and belief. So he says that if uh, to go ahead and believe that the first president of the United States is George Washington, that does not require a leap of faith. There's enough evidence out there to tell us that there was a first president of the United States named uh, George Washington. There, it's perfectly reasonable for a person who is grounded in intellectualism, somebody who, uh, who uh, is grounded in the, the world of science to accept the premise that the first president of the United States was a fellow named George Washington. It would, you have to be a real conspiracy theorist to go ahead and challenge that and say that there is insufficient evidence to go ahead and prove that point and to doubt that the first president of the United States was in fact George Washington. So there, if you're going to be a judge, you would say we have overwhelming amount of evidence that the first president of the United States in 1776 was a fellow named George Washington. And we could actually accept that as fact, even though currently in the year 2021, 2020, we don't have any empirical proof to that effect. But nonetheless, it's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to draw based on the evidence which is there. Now, on the other hand, if you were to go ahead and say, George Washington as a child chopped down a cherry tree, and when his father went ahead and challenged him on that, he said, my father, I cannot tell a lie. And he admitted to the fact that he, he chopped down a cherry tree. That there is very little, if any evidence that that is true. So to believe that, that requires a leap of faith. Absent any compelling evidence that the, that story is true. So faith that that is something which is true, but it's not rooted in belief. Belief is something where there's strong evidence, there's strong circumstantial evidence, there's strong evidence leading you to that conclusion. Belief is something where there's no conclusion to that whatsoever. 
back in the day before the Cubs won the World Series. So we used to say that belief that the Cubs this year are going to win the World Series. So there's no evidence of that whatsoever. There, the, the Sox fans over here. There, there, there's no, there's no, there's no evidence of that though whatsoever. I got two of you up there. There's no evidence of that though whatsoever. It's something which is complete leap of faith rather than a uh, rather than a belief. So what we have to do is when we look at the uh, the universe and we're looking for uh, evidence of God's existence. So again, it's never going to be that we're looking for empirical proof because it's impossible to have empirical proof of God's existence. But what we could look at if we take the uh, put on our judge's hat or a judge's wig rather than our lawyer's hat or our lawyer's wig. So we will go ahead and there's a, uh, uh, a lot of evidence which points in the direction of uh, a God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. The evidence uh, uh, on a simple term, we don't wanna go through like a whole um, uh, uh, sheer about the evidence of, of God's existence. You can go to Asia Tower at some point and uh, you can take one of their courses or listen, and it's probably online at this point, but you can go ahead and take all sorts of courses about proofs of, uh, of God. But on a very simple level, that the God, uh, that the universe itself speaks of careful planning, something which is carefully planned in order for its ongoing existence. The cycle of water to, uh, to uh, be on the ground, to evaporate, to form clouds, to fall again, and the whole cycle of how water is able to recycle itself, or how all living things, they eventually end up in the ground, they decompose in the ground, they provide nourishment for the new things which are growing, and then that constant cycle also of how the world, in a sense, recycles itself, or just the ability of the human body to be able to exist, to be able to maintain itself, to be able to adapt, to be able to do all of the things which, which it does, all the complex systems which exist inside of us just to allow us to be able to sit here and to be able to listen to a shear is an enormous amount of planning, an enormous amount of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of work which goes into that. And all of these systems have to work in conjunction with one another. And when the systems begin to uh, disagree with one another or they don't get along with one another, that's when illness arises and that's when disease is, is, is going to, uh, is going to uh, creep in. And the fact that on a, on a regular basis, let's say, the body does continue to function is something which is, uh, is mind boggling to, uh, to consider. And all of that uh, is evidence of planning on the part of a creator that the body should be able to exist in that perfect way that it does uh, without it, uh, uh, it being able to not only exist, but to be able to reproduce itself and to be able to reproduce itself in the manner in which it does. That's humans, that's plants, that's animals, and everything which, uh, which exists, all animate things which exist. All of that is a tremendous and incredible, incredible miracle beyond what, uh, but what we normally uh, think about. Uh, if you remember, I think I might have mentioned it in, in, a, in, in a drasha. Maybe not, probably not because I haven't, uh, haven't given a drasha live in a while. So uh, I probably went out of a mention in a drasha. But if, if you think about the uh, Victor Miller's that's out, used to talk about the amazing uh, qualities of an apple seed. So an apple seed, which you take from one, uh, from one apple. So you pull out one seed and you plant it into the ground. So what happens from that one seed? 
So that one seed, given the correct conditions, the correct, uh, the, the, the correct weather, in the correct moisture, in the correct sunlight, in the correct nutrients in the ground. So from that seed, you could grow an entire tree. So it's amazing to think about that whatever, the, whatever that tree is, the size of that tree, all of that emerged from this small little apple seed was able to then grow into a tree which is hundreds of times its original size and hundreds of times its original bulk. And it's not even clear where exactly trees get their bulk from, where all of the material which ends up inside of the tree, how would, did that actually emerge from the seed, the seed itself? Now, if the miracle of an apple seed stopped there, there would already be a tremendous miracle that you could grow something which is so large from something which is so small. But it goes further than that because on the apple tree, year after year after year, you're going to have bushels and bushels of apples which are going to grow. So where did all of those apples come from? They all came from that original apple seed. And each one of those apples contains numerous seeds which have the ability to produce future generations of trees and apples and seeds and trees and apples and seeds and trees and apples and seeds. And seemingly there's no limit to the number of generations which will, which will, sorry for the pun, stem from that original apple seed. In all of those, sorry Mel, in all of those trees, in all of those apples, in all of those future seeds, all of them trace themselves back to that original seed, which is your starting seed. So you could have hundreds of generations of apple trees all coming from a single seed. How does that, how, how is all of that information encoded into that original apple seed to produce the hundreds of generations of apple trees and thousands and thousands and thousands of bushels of apples? All of that is contained within the DNA or in the coding of that original seed. And that's something which is mind-boggling. Everything which grows and everything which procreates has that same miracle to it that all of the information to produce future offspring and future generation is all encoded in a single cell. Humans are created from two cells which join together. And from that, you're able to have create an entire person. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling to consider. And all of that is evidence of careful planning and creation on the part of a creator. And as a judge, it's much more likely to assume that that's something which was planned and created and designed than to think that it's something which is a random act of chance uh, in the universe. Uh, if we take it out of the context of creation, if you're walking in the, uh, in the desert at some point and you see a Timex watch, so what do you assume as soon as you see that Timex watch? Somebody has been here. Somebody lost their watch, and that's why there's a watch in the middle of the desert. Nobody thinks for a moment when you see that watch in the middle of the desert that spontaneously a bunch of pieces of sand fuse together in like a 3D printer to create a functioning watch. Nobody thinks that. Nobody's going to entertain. If you, somebody were to say, no, that's what I think actually happened, you would say, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard of in my life. How could a bunch of grains of sand fuse together like a 3D printer and create a functioning watch, which says on a Timex? That's the most absurd thing that, uh, that anybody could ever entertain. And yet the universe is much more complex than that. Every part of the universe is much more complex than that. And all of that as a judge indicates to us that there's plan and purpose in creation rather than it being something which, which is random. So it's not empirical proof, but it is a belief rather than a faith. And this is something when we, uh, 
uh, when we swing it around uh, uh, next week in Mirza Hashem. Uh, actually, we'll, uh, uh, pay attention to your emails whether we're on next week because next week uh, Khan is getting married. So I don't know next week on Tuesday what my uh, my schedule will be like. It may be convenient for me to get away with uh, from everything which is going on. But uh, but pay attention to your email as far as uh, as far as whether that is uh, whether we're going to meet. But um, we will pick it up from here after now that we know that uh, the one of the uh, the offshoots of the fact that God has no physical being is that there's no empirical proof, but that does not take away from the fact that there's plenty of evidence of God's existence. And we reasonably reach conclusions about things based on evidence and not necessarily based on empirical proof. Okay, so I think we'll uh, hold over here. Any uh, thoughts, comments, disagreements? You're going to the wedding, aren't you? What? You're going to the wedding, aren't you? In Rias Hashem. Rias Hashem, we are going. Hopefully, everybody should remain healthy. Everybody should remain safe. And we should be able to, as uh, my Bible would say, gay gesund and kum gesund. Should be able to know. Oh, here's a question. Uh, Question. Yeah. Yes, Uh, You may not want to take the time to deal with this. Uh, You may want to put it off, or you may not want to deal with it at all. Uh, My question is this. The need to assign anthropomorphic references to Hashem uh, in order to facilitate uh, a connection to Hashem, that's all well and good. From the other direction, though, we have uh, and you have pointed out that in order to say they had to see something and point to it. And I, I, I think of that every time I dove in my room. What did they see? What were they pointing at? What's that? Yes. So um, you want to hold that for another time? So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it uh, briefly, and then you'll let me know after the brief answer whether or not you'd like to, uh, to revisit it uh, in the future. It could be that we'll, we'll start with this uh, next time we meet on the, uh, the Tuesday night class. But uh, they, they had a, uh, some sort of prophetic vision. Now, prophecy also, by definition, that's why uh, Chazal, and we'll get to this, and we'll talk about this when we get, get to the principle related to, uh, to prophecy, but prophetic visions also, like we know from, um, uh, uh, you know, the descriptions which we have of Malachim and whatnot, so all prophecies also are, are going to be, unless you're Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, maybe something which is a little bit uh, different uh, for him, but for all other Nevi'im, what they're going to see is something which also has some sort of basis in, uh, in human experience. The same way that a person cannot dream about something which doesn't really exist, even when you dream about monsters, right? As creative as we are with monsters and aliens and all of those things, ultimately they all have uh, uh, body parts and they all have ways of referencing them of things which we already know. Because we can't think about something which we have no frame of reference. So even in a prophetic vision, they're going to see God in some way which is going to have some sort of human form to it, which is also, that's part of the misleading uh, part of the uh, the thing. If you're a Navi and you see God's hand or something like that, or you see God in some way where you could point to them, as you said, so obviously they were seeing something anthropomorphic. 
that we assume wasn't George Burns, who uh, you know they're pointing to over there. It was something a little bit more uh, profound, uh, profound uh, than that. It wasn't the Wizard of Oz, you know, don't look behind the curtain or whatever it is, just going ahead and uh, you know looking at the, uh, the, the, the that vision. So they were seeing something, but that something still had these human characteristics to it, because we can't think of something which is beyond. Uh, uh, what the mind is able to uh, to grasp, and therefore they had to see something which was in some way human, but something which clearly uh, bespeaks of God, and something which they recognize. Remember, the, the Chazal say that the ones who said Zed Keli Van Veu were like the babies who had were swallowed up by the ground when their parents hid them in order to save them from the the Mitzrim, and they were supported by God's hand. So somehow there was some frame of reference which they had and a recognition that they were then able to say, that's the hand which I remember as a baby feeding me and taking, and taking care of me. What exactly that looked like, that, uh, that I can't tell you. But, uh, but you're right, they, 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 the Zekelevanveu itself is a clear indicator of some sort of anthropomorphic design or image which, uh, which they had, which in their minds is very tangible. Right. So it's uh, I, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question, but uh, but it's uh, it, it, it's a uh, it's an excellent question though, that beyond just the Torah saying that God used his hand, it seems to me that there's actually re- references to people pointing to God and saying, you know, actually seeing him. Perceiving perceiving something, perceiving uh, something right. a and a mass common perception among thousands of people. Right. Uh, and if you'll say uh, it was a mass hysteria imposed on the entire Kahal, I'll accept that. Uh, so they they had the perception of seeing, but it wasn't it wasn't yeah, something corporeal or physical that they actually physically saw. Right. Uh, let's leave it there. Chris Yamsuf. So they're only about another six weeks away from Mount Torah, where the Torah tells us that they were able to see sounds, uh-huh. right? Which is also something which uh, you know we have a hard time associating with. Uh, I'm told with uh, things like acid and LSD, uh, you actually can see uh, uh, sounds like that. I haven't had the uh, the experience uh, as of yet, but uh, they, they say that uh, that uh, also the there, there's a specific word for that where the um, where the senses blend in with one another, or there's a leaking one o- over the other. So those who have taken it, uh, you know, they, they, they do describe such, uh, su- such experiences like that. Uh, you know, I heard one person recently describing that they were able to see the energy in a wall. They just stared at a wall and they were able to see, the, not, the, not the actual electricity in the wall, but they were able to see the energy of the wall itself. So those of us who, who haven't had that, uh, that experience, so we don't know exactly what that means, but uh, you know, these are people who otherwise, you know, whose opinions I, I, I value and I, and I respect. And they said, and they were doing it just for science. That's <laughs> the experience. But they said that that's a, that they were able to see things which, in a normal state of mind, uh, you know, you cannot see, you cannot experience. So it could be part of that as well. That the prophetic experience may fit into that. That we have to spend more time reading Rabbi Kaplan, Vary uh, Kaplan, about meditation in the Bible and meditation and prayer and all of that uh, stuff to uh, to tap into that potentially. Maybe that'll the, be our next series. The most miraculous aspect then would be the fact that 600,000 or 2 million people all perceived the same hallucination at the same time. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, Although for, it was for, in their mind. For sure. For sure. Getting uh, getting all those Jews to agree on anything <laughs> is, a, <laughs> is a miracle of miracles. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you, you, Rabbi. All right. All the best to you all. Stay healthy. Stay safe. It's good to see everybody. Thank you. All the best. Hannah is your daughter? Hannah is my daughter, yes.